Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday the 20th of March, Rebecca Whittlesey taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions where Rebecca took us through Acts chapters 1 to 8. Rebecca is on the staff team at City Hope Church, London, and is a regular teacher on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. Well, thank you, Andy, and morning, everyone. It's lovely to be with you. Um, it would be nice to be with you, but... Uh, as Andy says, it, we're grateful, aren't we, for the technology that enables us to carry on connecting and um, carrying on with loads of adventures that we've managed to continue in the last year. Um, when we booked this, I don't know when it was, Andy, a few months ago, we were really hopeful that actually I'd be in Manchester <laughs> uh, this March, but no, not to be. So um, next time, hopefully. But as Andy says, I'm in London where I live. Uh, this is City Hope Church building that I'm in this morning. I can't really concentrate on doing this at home. Uh, I find that quite difficult. So I live here with my uh, in London with my husband and two teenagers and I work for City Hope Church. And I love to do this kind of thing um, and open up the Bible together with brothers and sisters. So uh, as Andy says, we're going to have fun, I hope, and just enjoy being together. And remember, of course, that this morning's topic is um, Acts 1 to 8 and the Holy Spirit. And God is with us by his spirit wherever we are. So I know it's going to be a good time. I know it's going to be a blessing for us. And I pray as well that it's glorifying to him. So just by way of introduction, it's a bit of a caveat I'm going to give here. Um, I always find that when we do theology, that one of our frustrations is language. It's never uh, adequate. You know, the words we have are never adequate to talk about God well enough. And I find that particularly, actually, when we talk about the spirit, um, we often talk in metaphors, biblical metaphors and other metaphors, which are so helpful, but they are mostly just metaphors. And so talking about God, you know, theology means talk about God and our own words and our own language is never adequate, I find. And there's a frustration in that, but there's also a bit of a glory in that because it just reminds us that God is so beyond our comprehension and so other um, than us. So I just say that we're going to go into a lot of things which will be metaphors about the spirit of God. And uh, just to remember, our language is poor when it comes to, you know, who he is and what he's like. Um, you've got the notes I sent through. Uh, we're not going to put anything on the screen uh, because looking at words on a screen is not that interesting. Um, but hopefully you've got the notes. <clears throat> One final piece of introduction. I've got a bit of a scratchy throat this morning, so I do apologise if I keep clearing my throat. I know how annoying that can be uh, when a speaker keeps clearing their throat, but uh, I've got this sore throat. It's not COVID. Okay, so you're um, going through this course uh, with uh, Christchurch Manchester School of Theology, and today we've come up to the point where we get to the Acts of the Apostles, or the first chunk of it at least. And then that's going to lead us naturally into the um, more systematic theology uh, doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And Acts, uh, as you know, is a part of the Bible, which is narrative, it's story. And so we're going to approach it in that way. We're just going to look at the story, really. And because it's only eight chapters of scripture that we've got this morning, we're going to literally go through one chapter at a time and try and see if we can get through 
eight chapters. Uh, uh, we won't do all of it, obviously, but we're going to pick out things and follow a theme. And it says, put stuff in the chat. Do put stuff in the chat, and I'll try and be aware of it um, and come to it at the right time. Um, I always think Acts of the Apostles is a bit like, um, this is the way I describe it sometimes. When you have a bunch of ingredients on the worktop in the kitchen, and then a couple of hours later, you have a lovely cake. Um, I, don't, I have a teenage son who likes to bake, which is um, a great blessing in life, I can tell you. So I don't make cakes, but he does. Uh, and between the sort of, you know, the flour and the eggs and the milk or whatever it is on the side and then the beautiful cake, there's something that happens in between. And, uh, and, uh, and another analogy, which I particularly like because I'm a big wine fan, is, is a bunch of grapes on a vine in the soil somewhere in the world then becomes a bottle of wine in your hand in which you pour a glass on a Saturday night, Sunday lunchtime or whatever. And something happens in between. And I, I like to say that the Acts of the Apostles is, is sort of the plugs the gap. It's what happens in between the Gospels, the life and the passion of Christ. And then this extraordinary worldwide church of witness to Jesus Christ. And, and Acts kind of tells us the story of what comes in between. So um, I'm going to see how we do for time. I'm, the thing with the trouble with these things sometimes is you, we don't have a lot of time. We have a morning to, to talk about a lot of stuff. And so sometimes the actual Bible, the actual reading bits of the Bible gets squeezed out a bit, ironically, as we talk about it. But um, I'm sort of making an assumption here that you've all read the Acts of the Apostles. Um, and we will, I will dip into bits of it. And there will be a number of references in your notes, which obviously you can just look up um, in your own leisure, at your own leisure. So, so the Acts of the Apostles written um, by Luke, who, as we know, also wrote one of the Gospels, the third Gospel. Uh, Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul as well, we know, uh, as well as we think a doctor of some sort. Um, not quite sure what that means, but, and the dating for those of you who are interested, probably uh, consensus more or less suggests the early 60s. Um, dating is notoriously difficult and quite controversial for biblical books. And because I'm not a biblical studies expert, it's not something I tend to get into or that I tend to get too worried about, if I'm honest. Um, lots of effort and lots of time and lots of ink is spilt over talking about dating. But if you're thinking of the era in which these things were happening directly after the ascension of Christ, and then think Luke is probably writing it down, making an account of it in about the early 60s. So... Some people have a much later date, but if you're interested in that, you can go and look that up. And right at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, we read Luke explain that this is his second volume, if you like. So that, of course, is referring to his first volume, the Gospel. And he starts in Acts 1 and he says, um, I'm writing. Let me just read it. He says, in the first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So his point there is like in his gospel, he's written about the life and times and the passion of Christ. But in his mind, that's just the beginning. It's what Jesus has begun to do and teach. And so here comes the next step, the next phase, if you like. And right at the beginning of the Acts, we find that there's been 40 days between uh, the resurrection and then what we'll read about in chapter one, the ascension of Jesus. And, uh, and, and Luke explains that Jesus has given a very clear instruction to the disciples to wait to wait in Jerusalem. They unsurprisingly, like they often do, then just throw a question at him. So they show that they're thinking about something quite different, which is, is this the time 
there's a time come for the kingdom to be restored. So they're thinking completely differently. And he says, don't ask those questions. Don't worry about it. That's not your concern. What you need to do is wait. And so in Acts chapter one, chapter one, verse eight, we have a sentence, if you like, that Jesus says, which provides for us a framework for the whole of the rest of the book. And he says this to them. He says they're to wait in Jerusalem. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's a very famous sentence. And what it does is out of the, word, out of the mouth of Jesus, it's a prophetic statement, which then Luke writes down the rest of this book, the Acts of the Apostles, and shows this is exactly what happens. There's like a, a ripple effect as the gospel goes out. So as Jesus predicts, they'll receive power from the spirit. There'll be witnesses first in Jerusalem, but they won't stop there. We'll see as the story unfolds, the ripples will go out through Judea to Samaria. We'll get to Samaria today. In today's section, we don't get, we get a little bit further, as you'll see at the end. And so one commentator has written this. This verse, chapter one, verse eight, contains an inspired outline of the book of Acts. It refers to persons, Jesus Christ and the spirit, a power, the power of the spirit, and a program, this ever expanding witness to the gospel of Christ. Luke then proceeds to fulfill, record the fulfillment of this prediction through the book of Acts, right up until the church had reached Rome. And as we might gather from Rome, which is of course the center of the empire, the gospel then pumps out to the rest of the world. Starting from Jerusalem, the gospel message radiates further and further and further. And Rome is around about 1400 miles from Jerusalem. So we're watching through the book of Acts as sort of um, set out right at the beginning in chapter one. The beginning of the worldwide church start to radiate out from the, from the very center where it starts in Jerusalem. And we watch it through Acts get as far as Rome. And of course, the rest is history. And we're still in that history. We're still now in the ripples of that, the gospel witness emanating out from, from that first beginning. So you've got, I put a table in your notes, which is, it just explains this idea that Acts 1.8 gives this framework for what then is going to follow in the book. And as I say, today, we're only going to do the first eight chapters. You'll get to do the rest next time. So you will receive power and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in the table, you'll see that chapter by chapter, we read about those things. So it's from, roughly speaking, from one to six, we're reading about Jerusalem, the witness in Jerusalem. Then we go out further into Judea by chapter eight, we're in Samaria. In uh, chapter nine, oh, well, actually at the end of chapter eight, we start to read about the ends of the earth because we meet the Ethiopian eunuch and so on. But in chapter nine, of course, we meet Saul of Tarsus, who his conversion then uh, is instrumental in the Gentile mission uh, and the ends of the earth. So chapter one also contains uh, the news about how they decide to replace Judas as another, as a, they need a new apostle, essentially, they need to get a new one, new apostle to replace Judas. And there's an explanation of how that happens by casting lots which if we were together, we would turn on our tables to a little discussion about whether we think casting lots is a good way to choose an apostle, but we're not together. So just hold that thought um, and think about that. But so Matthias is appointed 
But what I want to get to is Acts chapter two, uh, where the promise of Jesus from chapter one is fulfilled. And I suspect we'll be very familiar with Acts chapter two. If you've been in churches like this for as long as I have, you'll have heard people preach about Acts chapter two a lot, um, particularly with regard to the characteristic of the church and the community of God. But um, first of all, a bit of context. So we read in Acts chapter two, that is Pentecost. And Pentecost is the word that we use to, to talk about this event when the spirit is poured out um, on the Jerusalem church in that very dramatic way. And the church is born as it were. Whereas Pentecost actually was a feast, a Jewish feast, which was already happening. That's why there's so many people in town. Uh, we read in Acts chapter two. That's why there's so many people from all over the place in Jerusalem because they've come for Pentecost. It's a, a festival in the calendar already and it's a like a harvest festival which is obviously in that context a bit more of a thing than it, it is for me in central London when people bring their tins of beans and put them on the stage at school or whatever the harvest festival looks like but uh, for them of course harvest and, and agriculture is central to life and it's a it's an extraordinarily um, party festival atmosphere in the city it's packed with people and what we see in all this kind of hubbub is the disciples are in a room. They're doing what Jesus told them to do, actually, aren't they? They're, they're hanging out in Jerusalem and they're just waiting. I imagine um, pretty confused and um, a bit desolate, probably. You know, they've watched Jesus be executed. Um, must be the lowest of the low. They've, they've seen him come back with such, you know, elation and joy. But now he's gone again. He's, got, he's left them again. And I imagine they... Well, you can only imagine, can't you, what they're feeling, but together they're waiting. Um, and I, I see in that as uh, echoes of the, them together in a room at the Last Supper. You know, there's echoes there as, as they wait in a room. They're with Jesus right on the eve of his passion, of his arrest and death. Here they're together in a room waiting uh, for the spirit to come and for the church, essentially the spirit-born church of Christ to start. They don't know that's what they're waiting for, but that's what's going to happen. And then we read very familiar, familiarly, I'm sure, in Acts chapter two, uh, this. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Not just the room, but the entire house. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the spirit gave them the ability. Dwelling in Jerusalem, there were Jews from every nation under heaven. They all come for the festival. And at this sound, they all came together. They were bewildered. Each one is hearing them speak in his own language and they're amazed and astonished saying, but aren't these all Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? That's what happened when uh, that promise of the Holy Spirit coming in power on the disciples happens. And there's a few things to note there. The sound of the wind. We know from our biblical theology, from looking at the rest of the Bible in the context, that the wind refers to the, the power of God. We think of, um, I was think of the most uh, central kind of epic event in the history of the people of God is the parting of the Red Sea, isn't it? It's the, it's the rescue from slavery in Egypt. And, and, and after the Exodus and that rescue and God performed that miraculous deliverance, the people of God throughout the Old Testament, they never stop remembering and recounting that event. That absolutely seals who they are 
God is our redeemer. God is our rescuer. He redeemed us. Remember when you brought us out of Egypt. And we read it again and again in the Psalms, in the writings, in the poetry. That wind uh, which parted the sea. And, uh, and as you might know, the, the word for spirit in our Bibles is exactly the same word as breath and wind. So whether you're in the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew or in the Greek and the New, the word uh, ruach in the old and pneuma in the new uh, is a word that means spirit, it means uh, wind, it means breath, it's interchangeable. So there's a comment there about tongues, yeah, okay. Um, so that's the wind. The other thing we read is that um, he, the spirit filled the house. And again, there's echoes there of the spirit or the presence of God. What does the presence of God fill? In the Old Testament history, it fills the, the tabernacle and the temple, the presence of God, where, where God's spirit dwells among people is in the tabernacle and in the temple. Well, that's, that's changing, isn't it? Now, at this point in history, that's a change. Spirit fills the house. Tongues of fire. Again, fire in the Old Testament refers to presence. It refers to awe. Um, you know, God appears. He sends fire on the mountain um, when Elijah is sparring with Baal. Um, the burning bush, you know, the, the theophany of God appearing in the burning bush, a fire of God. And, and, and the other languages, of course, interestingly, and this is a conversation we might get into later, we'll see, but are languages of earthly languages of other nations that people understand. Um, they're not the languages of angels that we read about later in the epistles, but they are earthly languages that God gives, it seems, by his spirit, supernatural utterance to people to witness what is happening in this moment of history that other people hear. That miraculous um, giving of languages. And so... The second, um, the second slide about Pentecost, I've, I've just called why. So we did a bit of the what and now the why. Well, just very simply, these are theological themes through the scripture. Um, they were filled, it says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. A, po a pointer, a sign that the church has become the eschatological temple. The church has become the place where the presence of God lives on earth. Um, a sign, if you like, the languages, however you interpret that, a sign that rather than a Babel in Genesis where God scattered people uh, and people went their own ways with different languages, here we see uh, um, other languages are being spoken, but why? In order to bring people in, in order to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, in order to say this is a moment in time actually when all nations and all peoples Will, will be reached with the good news, with this project of the gospel witness, which, as we've already heard, is going to go out further and further and further through the church. They receive power. We'll read, as we'll read coming up, signs and wonders suddenly <laughs> just breaking out over the city. Miraculous works are happening. Power to do the miraculous by the Spirit of God. Miraculous works which do what? They proclaim the, the gospel. They proclaim uh, the kingdom. So not only do we find, as we'll read, incredible, powerful, bold preaching, we see signs that attest to that preaching. And as a result, mass conversions, huge conversions, suddenly breaking out over the city. And we see in this moment um, the new age, the new 
church age beginning. It's as the historically and theologically, chronologi chronologically, it's a huge turning point in, in the people of God and in the history of our world. It's a new age as prophesied by the minor prophet Joel, um, expectations. And again, it's like, I, this is the thing I love about what God does. People have expectations, don't they? But I guess they never, ever, ever happen in the way that people expect. But this is the moment with this room full of people, probably scared, a bit confused. The spirit of God uh, comes in such a way that the history just changes in a moment. All flesh now can receive the spirit as Joel prophesied. And what we see then is a new community. It's like, a, you know, a, the new community of Christ, a spirit born people, the church, all nations incorporated into that. And there's a table in your notes which just draws some analogies. Some people love this sort of thing. Some people are skeptics about it, and that's fine. You can be either, but I love it. So there's a little table with some parallels between Sinai and Pentecost. Make of it what you will. I think I got this from Andrew Wilson, Echoes of Exodus book, maybe. Uh, Andrew Wilson and Alistair Roberts, Echoes of Exodus. It's a brilliant book which talks about how the Exodus the exodus um, of the people of Israel from Egypt is just a theme of exodus, of rescue, of redemption that goes throughout the whole of scripture. Um, but as you can see from the table, there are lots of parallels. And this wonderful thing, you've got Moses going up the mountain and then God's presence descends. There's fire, there's noise. And then there, there's a gift given that defines the people of God. And that gift at Sinai is the law. And, uh, and then all sorts of instructions are given for the tabernacle where God's presence will be established on the earth. And at Pentecost, what we see is Jesus ascends. We didn't talk much about the ascension, sorry. That's a really great topic we could talk about all morning, but I don't feel we have a lot of time for that. Uh, Jesus ascends, God's presence comes in a, in a different way. There are tongues of fire, there's a noise from heaven, and there's a gift given, the gift that now defines God's people, the church, his spirit. And the dwelling place of God on the earth is established in the church. So, what we find then, and in the scripture, it feels like it's like as soon as. I mean, we don't know. I don't know if it was as soon as, or if there's a gap. Clearly, the Luke writes highlights not the entire story, but we read immediately. Peter is filled with the Spirit and out preaching with boldness um, in a way that we've not seen before. And he preaches this first evangelistic sermon um, in which he acknowledges it's a, it's a good it's a good model this for an evangelistic sermon or even evangelistic conversation when you're trying to explain something to people because he focuses entirely on Christ he focuses on the facts of the passion and uh, it's good to remember that our faith is, is based on fact. It's, based, it's a reasonable faith. It's based on an event in history, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he focuses on the facts of the life and passion of Christ. He explains to the people listening, well, your hope was always in, in, a, in a king from David. You know, our hope has always been waiting for this king. But, but we've seen David's not the answer. And can you now see how Christ fulfills all those promises? He acknowledges again, as he often does, um, or, or as the other apostles do, and as Peter does in his letters, in fact, later on, his eyewitness credentials, doesn't he? He says, I've seen the ascension, we've seen it. Okay, these are facts that we're dealing with. 
and you now see what's going on around us that you see that Jesus is Lord and uh, filled with the spirit this sermon uh, has a, a massive effect in 3000 we read it added that day um, and what happens as well as that um, extraordinary change in <laughs> in the effectiveness if you like of Peter and the others as they're filled with the spirit is this new spirit-filled community that we read about at the end of Acts chapter 2 um, things they're devoted to, we read, don't we? Again, familiar passage, they're devoted to teaching. They're devoted to listening and understanding the apostles' teaching. They're devoted, it says to that. They're devoted to one another. There's a new kind of mutuality, if you like, um, birthed out of this spirit-filling moment. They're devoted to breaking bread. We can't really get into this, but it, I've looked into this a little bit. I'm not sure whether that, that actually means. I think we generally think that means Lord's Supper, but... I think, you know, it might just mean eating together. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Feel free to go away and look into that. I have looked into it a little bit. They're devoted to one another, to being with one another, to eating together. They're devoted to the teaching and they're devoted to prayer. And we'll see some of that prayer later. And the marks of this church are these. And it's always good to reflect, isn't it? I mean, we are the church of Jesus Christ, but these are the marks of the Acts church. Signs and wonders power as jesus said you'll receive power when the spirit comes sharing everything they're joyful and thankful they have favor with other people around them there are daily conversions it seems at this early stage and they live in reverential fear they're the they're the marks we read of this new community and as this new community is formed we start to see then Luke is going to recount how these little ripples of the gospel witness go, as Jesus said they would, first in Jerusalem and then out. So in chapter three, we see the ripples begin. We've already seen it in chapter two with this incredible Pentecost sermon, but it continues. And in chapter three, there's the famous uh, healing miracle. Um, a man who got much more than he bargained for was asking for money. And, uh, and he was supernaturally radically healed from, from decades of being a cripple. Um, the power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's, says Thomas Walker. They're filled with power suddenly. They're on their way to the temple. We know the story. The guy asks for money and um, Peter says, well, I haven't got any, but be healed in Jesus' name. And as a consequence of this extraordinary miracle, Peter gets to preach Again, and he, and he focuses on the facts of what's happened to Jesus. He focuses on Christ and the resurrection. And he doesn't mince his words, does he? He's full of power and confidence and boldness. It's the extraordinary change if you compare, you know, one of the last times we saw Peter's in the Garden of Gethsemane where, I don't, we can't blame him, can we? <laughs> it must have been extremely upsetting and... Um, discombobulating they didn't know what is going on as Jesus sort of effectively gave himself up to the soldiers and Peter it seems has uh, not understood what's going on he's afraid and he's um, aggressive as we read in the garden as he cuts off the ear of the servant and so on but he's utterly transformed here isn't he he's utterly transformed um, full of power full of boldness the gospel witness in his mouth is having huge fruit and uh, 
we just read of these um, ordinary people, if you like, the first things we read about is the crowd, it's like the mob in Jerusalem. And then, of course, we see as things start to hop up a bit for Peter and the other apostles, he actually gets to speak to not just the, you know, the crowds, the hoi polloi, he gets to then address the same message to the religious leaders and those um, in authority. And we see that in chapter four. And if you like, this is one, this is really the beginning of the pattern in Acts where we read there's great progress and advance as, as Jesus has said there would be there's gospel witness being effective. And then there's, boom, there's, there's an opposition. There's like a slap back. And we keep seeing this. They move forward. They get slapped back. They continue to move forward. So there's, they're never cowed into submission, but there's often opposition. And the opposition starts. Here in chapter four, it says, Peter's filled with the spirit uh, and he's preaching boldly again. But the religious authorities don't like it. They, they arrest them. Um, and again, I think it's easy for us to read this and be so familiar, but if you think for Peter and, and the other apostles, they've watched these people execute Jesus. They've watched them um, essentially on you know, false trumped up charges with a political agenda execute Jesus, and um, they have every power to do the same, and there would be every expectation, I would imagine, on Peter's part that that can easily happen to him. But the, the extraordinary confidence and, I don't know, perseverance, persistence um, that we read about here about Peter is really remarkable, bearing in mind who it is that he's coming up against um, and what he's seen them do. Um, but again, he just says, well, there's no other name in, under heaven by which you can be saved. In other words, I'm, I don't need to be scared of you. There's one name who, uh, above all names, and I need not be scared of you or anyone else. He has extreme boldness. And he says, we, we cannot but speak. And this is where we see this idea of witness, which kind of um, goes through, as Jesus said from chapter one, verse eight, you receive power, why? Because you'll be my witnesses. And Peter is, is, is always bringing in that witness element. So he says, we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. If you've seen and heard something, you're a witness. You know, if you're called into a trial as a witness, it's because you've seen something or you know something that, that um, is needed, brings light to the case. And we, as the disciples of Jesus, are witnesses, things that we know. We know things, we've seen things, we've heard things. They enable us to witness to Christ. Not in the same way as Peter did, obviously. Uh, Peter, who then later in his letters, you know, says, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I, was, I met the resurrected Lord. You know, he was an eyewitness to those events. But we are witnesses, aren't we, of the goodness of God. Of, if you're a Christian, you believe fully in the historical resurrection of Christ, which is um, the fact that this faith is based around. But for these guys, what happens is... Um, the opposition, the extreme heat that they are under, it doesn't drive them underground. It, it drives them to prayer. Um, and the thing that always strikes me about this prayer is in Acts 4, uh, dying in 27, <clears throat> is how they pray, what they pray for, considering they've just been arrested and hauled before um, the, uh, the religious leaders. Uh, whoever, whoever within their power to make their life very uncomfortable, if not worse than that. But they pray in this way that has such 
confidence in the providence of God. I think it's very instructive. I'm just going to read it. It's in your notes. And this is interesting. This is they all prayed this. I don't know if they're all praying it at once, if it's a sort of set prayer that's um, they use or, or, or what. But for indeed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together in this city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do as much as your power and your plan had decided beforehand would happen. Sovereignty of God, the control of God over, over everything that's happened. And now, Lord, Pay attention to their threats and uh, keep us safe or make sure we don't get hurt. No, he said, they say, pay attention to their threats and grant your servants to speak your message with great courage while you extend your hand to heal, to bring about miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And it says, with great power, the apostles are giving testimony. They're giving witness to what they know, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace is on them. I don't know about you. I think if I was preaching and uh, had been hauled up before the authorities, and there was, there was a, I was genuinely in fear for my life and my safety and possibly my family. I think I would be praying for wisdom about whether to lie low. I'd be praying about for protection and safety. I'd be getting the rest of the church to pray the same thing. And what these guys, what this church prays for when they gather after having been arrested and threatened is they pray for boldness to go again and to, to keep going. They're so... Um, they're like ter terriers in the bone, you know, they're not going to let it go. Uh, they're there to preach the gospel. They're there to fulfill those prophetic words of Jesus, to be witnesses in Jerusalem and beyond. And they're just going to do it full of the spirit. Okay. Um, I'm just wondering whether to do the next little bit or whether we should have a little break, a little breakout room. Let's have a little breakout room, shall we? Because um, my tea's gone cold. Um, let's, let's go to rooms. One of the things, and I don't know all of you, and I don't know your experiences or your um, ecclesiology, your church backgrounds or, or anything like that, but I know in my church background, in my tradition, I've been in churches like this one, which is part of Catalyst, um, all my Christian life, various churches. And um, we often talk about uh, an experience of receiving the spirit ourselves as being like that Pentecost moment. Yeah, so, the, so as prophesied, the spirit of God came on the, the disciples there in that place in Jerusalem and they were filled and in a way that changes things weren't they and the power that Jesus had told them to expect is evident uh, and we see all those theological implications you know of the church being now the dwelling place of God on earth and so on but I've heard lots of people say and I've probably thought this myself over the years that actually our experience of the spirit and, and our expectation of having a dynamic relationship with God through his spirit is somewhat akin to what the what the disciples experienced at Pentecost. Um, and I think that's quite a good thing just to stop and think about. So share your experiences of um, knowing God by his spirit, receiving his spirit, whatever terminology you want to use, um, and think about how it how it relates, what your experience is of power and boldness and all the things that we see happening to the church. Is that all right? 
great. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, hope you had a good time. But I uh, hope you did chat a little bit about the Holy Spirit. Um, Rebecca, I'm talking too much. I'm going to be quiet and hand over to you. Thanks, Andy. Cool. Okay. Um, let's crack on, as Andy would say. Um, uh, and uh, we've come to chapter five. And the chapter five of Acts is one is chapter, the only part of chapter five of Acts is one you probably don't ever want to get on the preaching rotor. Um, so uh, we read at the end of the quote we just read in chapter four, with great power, the apostles are giving testimony to the resurrection and great grace is on them all. Things are really motoring. We're seeing incredible things happen in the life of the church and the gospel witness. And uh, we get to this point, we think, what could possibly go wrong? We're on a roll. And then we get to chapter five, where as we see the church is this beautiful picture of sharing together, of mutuality no one has need you know and uh, and then we're given a little insight into the fact that people are actually selling possessions and bringing money as gifts to help finance the church probably help you know look after the apostles who are working so hard preaching and getting arrested and preaching and getting arrested um, and so we're reading about this it's a fabulous picture of the the community of God that's been birthed at Pentecost and then we read of course in the beginning of chapter five, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which I'm going to read quickly because it's good to read some Bible when you're doing a biblical theology course, isn't it? Um, so here we go. So we, we've got this, uh, lots of people selling things, bringing money to the apostles. Things are going great right at the end of chapter four. Chapter five, a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles feet peter said ananias why has satan filled your heart to lie to the holy spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold didn't it remain your own and after it was sold was it not at your disposal why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart you have not lied to men but to god when ananias heard those words he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard it. I'm not surprised. And then, of course, what happens is his wife comes in. Peter asks her the same question. Did you, did you bring the whole amount of, of money for the property? And she says, yes. She lies as well. Uh, and he's, he pronounces that she too will die. And she does there and then. And, you know, when we read the Bible and we read narrative like this, we often, I suspect, insert ourselves in the story and think, what would this be like? Is this new church, this church plant, if you like, in Jerusalem, and things are going great, and it's so encouraging, and there's so much, um, so many new believers, there's so much fruit, there's, there's miracles, um, and, then, and then this happens, which is the most devastating thing, if I try to imagine this happening in my church, you know, the same sort of thing happening, and what an effect it would have, what I don't do is, is try and imagine what it's like to be Peter, I think I, I never put myself in that position, or indeed, in Ananias or Sapphira's position either I put myself as a kind of onlooker what would this be like but actually it's it's so um sobering it's like another one of those slaps in the progress of the church that we've been reading about this is this is scary it, it says uh, great fear came on all those who heard and I'm not surprised and we might you know, like I say, what you, you may not want to have to preach this passage but as a preacher, but um, how you 
handle it and how you think about it and how you maybe explain it um, to someone else. Let's say you have a non-Christian friend who finds it and comes and asks you about it. Well, a few insights that are, are helpful, I think, um, and as you've got them in your notes, commentator F.F. Bruce says, the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts, what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua. In both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. So the story of Achan, if you're not familiar with it, um, in Joshua and the Old Testament, is um, that the people of God, is people of Israel lose a battle they should never have lost. And it's perplexing and they don't know why, but, but the reason is, the reason that they've lost the battle is because there is sin amongst them. And uh, Joshua speaks to Achan when it becomes clear that it's Achan who has disobeyed God directly, a specific um, instruction he's disobeyed. And Joshua says this to Achan, why have you brought disaster on us? The Lord will bring disaster on you today. All Israel stoned him to death. And as Peter says to Ananias, as we just read, how have you thought up this deed in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. So there's this extraordinary progress and, and positive work of God amongst the church. And then this event happens, which I imagine would have been extremely difficult to handle. Um, it's worth reflecting on if you have a if you have time at some point that the way that we handle um, episodes in the Bible that are frankly to our ears sound rather unpalatable, and I wonder whether or not we find um, the Achan story less offensive maybe is the word than the Ananias and Sapphira story or 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 what and maybe because of context we relate more to one than the other, and we might ask well this this seems like a very harsh judgment if indeed that's what it is from some people who basically have just bought a huge amount of money um, as a gift so it had to be a lot of money because they were pretending it was the full proceeds from the sale of a piece of land so um, that's a substantial amount of money but as a result um, they're not you know there's not blessing from God as they give there's actually judgment for their deceit and their lying to God and Phil Moore, who's um, a church leader in New Frontier Circles in Wimbledon, writes these brilliant uh, commentary series. I don't know if, you've, if you're familiar with them. They're called Straight to the Heart. They're just little paperback commentaries on books of the Bible. Very readable, very insightful. Um, I recommend them to you. And this is a quote from Phil Moore's book on Acts. He writes this, the advance of the church is firmly linked to her pure and attractive witness to the person of Jesus Christ. If Satan soils and corrupts her under a veneer of discipleship, it is game over for the church. Like a surgeon dealing with a cancerous melanoma, God gets out his scalpel and operates fast. Soon Ananias and Sapphira are lying dead on the floor of his surgery, for the body of Christ has been spared. That, that again, to me, is very sobering thought. So much of the time, I think we, we can be so sad and really grieved over the things that we see that the world around us sees in the church. You know, the public face of the church sometimes can be so, um, so against <laughs> what it should be. You know, that public witness to Jesus Christ then is 
as the as um, Phil says, soiled and corrupted under a veneer. And you only have to think of various people and scandals um, in history and contemporary ones coming out of Christendom and the church to think, no, we want a witness. We want the church of, of Jesus Christ to be to be a pure and attractive witness. And we want to deal deftly with things that would corrupt and spoil that. Um, and in fact, Jesus, does he not, um, when he talks about sin, he, he says, well, you be, you be so ruthless with your own sin, it's as if you cut off your own hand or pluck out your own eye. You know, that's, you know, these things that aren't fitting in the church of Jesus Christ, we should be ruthless with. So that's a pretty sobering episode in this, uh, in this story of this new church, isn't it? Oh, and unfortunately, chapter five, the, the part of the story, it doesn't, um, it's not all fun and games by any means, because on the back of this internal opposition or, you know, um, disruption, if you like, with Ananias and Sapphira, we then see the external opposition coming against uh, the church again, yet again, chapter five, we've got an imprisonment. But of course, there's this fantastic story of a miraculous prison escape. Um, but the thing again, just to say, and I, I, I'm not saying we are the apostles of the first century, we are Peter, or that there's the same experience necessarily for us. I'm not saying that because I think that's a complex matter. What I am saying is that witnesses of Christ uh, and those who are filled with the spirit, these things should provoke us and inspire us and excite us and, and make us question a little bit. Well, where's the, where's the evidence of the power of God in my life? But the thing about Peter is that he gets out of prison in this miraculous way. There's an angelic deliverance. And what do they do? They go straight back to the place uh, where they were and start preaching again. Again, it's that thing about being a witness. We must obey God, not people. What we know means that we can't, we can't stop. We won't stop. We shouldn't stop what we're doing, whatever you say. And they, he even says to them again, he's so bold, you know, God raised up Jesus, but you killed him. He doesn't pull back from telling it the way it is. Um, and then we find this quite key um, episode in chapter five is where Gamaliel is um, sort of tries to take the heat out of the situation here with the high priest and the other leaders. So it's all getting pretty um, overheated. And Gamaliel very wisely, as is known as Gamaliel's council, he counsels the, uh, the assembly there who are judging Peter and the apostles. And he basically says, look, if, if all of this is just man-made, it's a fuss about nothing, it will just peter out. Don't, don't, um, don't worry about it. If, in fact, it is of God, you better watch yourself because you'll, you're in danger of being found fighting against God himself. And whether that actually put the fear of God of the, in them or not, or whether they just thought it was, you know, good, sensible advice, it seems, that, you know, that's a, uh, and Luke almost puts that in there. It's a little, to, to be honest, it's just a great little nugget of truth about the gospel witness of Peter and the early church and of the rest of history since, you know, of the church to now and forward. Um. Gamaliel's saying, well, if this is of God, you better be careful. 
you know, if Jesus was the Messiah, if these men who have seen perform miracles and preach with great power, if this is a godly move, then you need to be careful. Uh, Gamaliel's counsel is, a, is a, a great little nugget there of truth. And we see it, chapter five, it ends again. It's this cycle throughout. It ends again with gospel preaching through the city with, with great power. That's the end of chapter five. So this is opposition. There's this awful episode with Ananias and Sapphira, and then there's more arrest and more persecution. But the gospel just keeps pumping out into the city. But what we find is that, again, we've got this um, positive, um, fruitful endeavor of the church. But then again, chapter six, we find what happens now is there's a, an issue of complaining within the church. I don't suppose you've ever come across that. Um, people complaining within the church and again it's a it's a like so oh okay here we go again it's a stop it's an obstacle in the road it's um a bit of a distraction from what is going on which is this um project to push the gospel message out to see the church grow and expand and what we have of course is a very actually what what can be trivialized a little bit if we're not careful into as i say people complaining um, and many translations talk about the dispute about being um, the dispute being about waiting tables. That's what many translations they use that um, phrase. But essentially, what's happening here is, of course, there's a dispute because there's a food program to help the poor, which is great. And as I'm sure you have in Christchurch, Manchester, to some degree, and we and we do here, you know, food banks and so on, a vital part of the church's life. And they've got one here already in the early church in Jerusalem. There's a there's a pro project to feed the poor. And the poor in this situation often are, are widows, people who are left with no you know, resources or income. But what we've got is some people are saying, but hold on a minute, because the Hebraic widows and the um, uh, Grecian widows, the, so they're, they're all Jews, but they're different types of Jews, are not being treated the same. That's the accusation. There's, there's, there's not a level playing field that's not fair. Um, and so you think, oh, there's a little bit of a quibble here and um, Peter's too important to deal with it. I, and I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think um, the, what we're seeing here is a little um, vignette of cultural, you know, niggling animosity between cultures that's crept into the early church. And, uh, and the way they deal with it is, of course, Peter says, well, we need to focus on what we're doing. We need to focus on this, on praying, on preaching, uh, but we can't, we don't want to ignore this thing and we can't. And so they actually invite the church to appoint people to deal with it. They don't, I find this just interesting point. You notice they don't, Peter doesn't appoint seven men. They invite the church to gather and appoint seven deacons to take care of this issue which means they, they care about it, they think it's important. And as we read, they choose men who are uh, full of the Holy Spirit, who are wise and mature to deal with this problem. And, they, and the word that they use for these deacons, they're known as the, the seven deacons, um, is the same word as, it's the word, as I'm sure you know, it's a word that means service or ministry. So it's a minister, somebody who ministers or serves. Um, like I say, the translations, use phrases like wait tables or serve at tables, but, but the same word is applied to the minister, whether they're out preaching the gospel and praying like the apostles or whether they are 
making sure that the food distribution is fair and equitable. They're all services, they're all ministries of the church and they're all important. Um, and the reason that this I think is such a vital thing is that as we have seen and as we will see that a, a, a divided church subverts the gospel. So any I think as churches, we've experienced this. I, I don't know about your church. I'm, I'm in the middle of London, so we're a very multi-ethnic church, very diverse in lots and lots of ways. And it's so vital that we that we address uh, as best we can though, any any kind of cultural animosity. You know, um, Paul addresses it himself, doesn't he, in his in in his letters. Um, it's vital that, that we address any kind of cultural animosity, anything in the church which um, feels like somebody's, somebody's losing out, somebody's missing out because of where they come from, what, what they look like, who they are, or, or their educational background, or whatever it is, whatever the levels of that we experience in the church. I think in this very early church, what we see there is that there's a danger creeping in of, uh, of, of cultural animosity between different people. And they wanna deal with that very firmly. Okay, what's the time? Sorry. I don't know if I'm talking a lot or just very fast. I'm trying to pack lots of things in. So Stephen, Stephen's one of the men that we just read about who's um, appointed to help with this issue of um, food distribution being done um, well and fairly amongst the widows and uh, we read that he's a, a, a great evangelist he's preaching with boldness see, performing signs and wonders um, man full of the holy spirit and what we see again here is you might call it opposition i mean we you know stephen's the first christian martyr that we know about again i think um, our context is very different obviously but the reason that this, um, this early church, that we're looking into the first steps of the, of the early church, it seems to me the reason that there's so much pushback and so many obstacles and so many slaps coming back against them is because they're not just sitting in a church doing their own thing. They're, they're forever pushing and advancing and making waves and getting out there and doing things um, and, and making, you know, and I, probably being a bit of a pain um, in some way, certainly to the to the religious leaders and others. Uh, and so again, you think, well, we don't want persecution. I don't want persecution. You know, we talk about what's happening in this country um, in terms of the way that the church is maybe, maybe more marginalized than it was, that there's less freedom maybe as Christians to express some of the things we, we believe. And there are some changes. There are cultural changes in our society, aren't there? But, um, I'm not sure, and I, as I say, I always, pre always preface this, I'm not welcoming persecution. I'm not looking either for arrest or martyrdom, particularly. Um, but if we are, you know, filled with the spirit and boldly proclaiming the gospel and seeking to um, be witnesses, you know, with what we know um, and, and just getting out there and doing it with power and boldness, I think it does make waves, doesn't it? And it does produce some backlash and it does produce some opposition. And in a way, the, the first few chapters of Acts should encourage us that that's actually probably all part of the, the expectation uh, of being a church on the move. So Paul, so Stephen, as I say, the first martyr, um, 
the first Christian martyr that we know about. And uh, when, we, when we do this in person, we have a little bit more of a reflection time on, um, on Stephen and what he, what he does and says. But the interesting thing to know about Stephen, you may be very familiar with the story, is that he's accused of blasphemy. So rather like Jesus was, and he's accused of um, blasphemy against Moses specifically and the temple. So, so essentially denying and calling, you know, uh, I guess disrepute onto the, the, the Jewish faith. Um, they call false witnesses against him. It's a, again, it's a trumped up uh, charge and it's, a, it's not a fair court by any means. In fact, his execution is performed by the mob. Um, so it's far from, you know, we'd be uh, definitely campaigning against that kind of treatment. And ironically, what he does so brilliantly, and if you read his um, speech to the Sanhedrin, which is very famous, it's very long. I think it's 52 verses of monologue um, of Stephen's speech. But what he does is he completely turns the tables. Um, and, and again, I, I think Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, which takes you on a little whistle-stop tour of biblical theology, you know, from Moses and the temple, and explains lots of those things. And what he does is he just turns the tables on his accusers and it shows actually how, how they're the ones that have got it wrong, how they're the ones that have not understood. Um, and I think it's helpful sometimes for us as Christians speaking to skeptics or speaking to those who not only don't understand but oppose our faith. If we know people like that who we have a relationship with to speak to, I'm not talking about going out and shouting it on the streets, that doesn't tend to make friends, but but, but if we know people, then actually to understand what God is doing throughout the history of his people, throughout the history of the Bible, um, we should have absolute confidence in that, that we understand the, the context of Moses in the temple and through to, to our day, through to the church age. And Stephen does that. If you read Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, which we're not going to do because 52 verses of monologue, you'll find actually... Is, is quite rich. Lots of people, I think it was George, George Bernard Shaw um, called, um, called Stephen a quite intolerable young bore, <laughs> something like that, um, said it was just like very long-winded, and but actually it isn't. And, and this is what, um, I think this is Phil Moore again, this is Phil Moore again from his book. He says this, Stephen serves as a one-man summary of everything part one of Acts has told us we must be. Equally at ease, serving humbly in obscurity. So that was the, the business with the um, widow's food or preaching boldly in adversity. This is a man who studied the scripture, who prayed bold prayers. He performed great miracles and made bitter enemies. In fact, he's such a model Christian that Luke deliberately portrays him as the perfect witness to Christ. Fillmore says. So again, this theme of witness, I think, is really helpful. We heard it right at the beginning. Uh, Jesus says it in um, Acts 1, 8. You're going to be my witnesses. And we're seeing these people, how they witness to the truth of what they know and how filled with the spirit they do so with great power and signs and wonders and boldness. So his speech is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. Um, it's not really a sermon, I don't think, but you could, you could argue that. Um, Phil calls it a well-crafted defense of his faith and a reversal where he puts the Sanhedrin on trial. Um, he shows the true, the true faith, if you like, and turns the, 
where is it? Um, Stephen is in chapter seven, chapter seven of, of Acts is where he's brought before the Sanhedrin and he gives his defense, essentially he's allowed to speak and he uses that opportunity to, um, somebody just sent me a message, he uses that opportunity to, to essentially set out this brilliant um, long discourse about the, the work of God and the acts of God, you know, to this point and what is going on, he turns the table. And then we see as if, as if, um, you know, Stephen gets to be the first person martyred for, for his faith in Christ. And then we also see this beautiful picture of um, Christ receiving Stephen as he dies, as he's stoned to death by the mob. Uh, he says that he saw Christ, there was a vision of Christ standing, not sitting, but standing up, you know, as it were, to receive Stephen, which again is beautiful. And at, and at this point, we get this little subtle introduction to Saul of Tarsus. At the stoning of Stephen, he's there uh, approving of what's going on. So he's present, Luke's put him in the picture, there he is, and, he, and he's completely on the, on the side of those who were stoning Stephen and accusing him of blasphemy against their faith. That sort of Tarsus, of course, your next session will be Acts, from Acts 9, which is the, the point where we meet uh, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, and he has this dramatic conversion, and then he, of course, becomes a, a key uh, link in the chain of this gospel proclamation, this project to take the good news out to the whole world. But we're not getting to chapter nine today, we're gonna leave that. So, so chapter eight is, is, uh, is a real turning point actually in the, in the story of Acts and in the table we started with, you know, with the um, Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. Chapter eight suddenly is where we catch up with uh, a few of those steps and we see a few of those steps changing. So because of Stephen's martyrdom, because um, the animosity and the heat has really grown in Jerusalem towards the new the Christians, the new church, what we see in, in, uh, in Acts eight is a key thing in the, in the purposes of God for the church. Uh, and chapter eight, verse one, Saul approved of the execution of Stephen and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles remain in Jerusalem, but the believers of which now there are thousands and thousands um, are scattered. And <laughs> this is... Um, we can see, can't we, in the providence of God and in the story of the witness to, to the truth of Jesus Christ, the gospel going out, that this is very much a key part of the plan. So people are scattered, and as they're scattered, they're taking the gospel witness, just as Jesus said, throughout Judea and as far as Samaria. But again, I just want to say, um, these people ha have left their homes in fear of their lives. That's why they're scattered, not that you know, they're not just doing an outreach team in Samaria. They've left because of persecution. Again, I just think uh, when we read it, it was, they always think, well, it's great, it's scattered and they just took the gospel everywhere and that was all part of the plan. And of course it was, and it's, it's part of the reason we sit here today. But these are real people who left their real homes because of persecution. And of course it happens, um, somebody's mentioned in the chat, it happens 
persecution of Christians, very real physical persecution of Christians happening all around the world still today, or in certain parts of the world. I mean, not all around the world, but so they're scattered, and it says everywhere they went, they pre they proclaimed the good news. Sometimes these these translations they say everywhere they went they preached where they preached the gospel. And uh, I have a friend, a colleague here, Paul Brown, who's um, an evangelist, and he doesn't like that translation. They preached the gospel. He just says they chatted the good news everywhere they went. These are not apostles, or and they're not necessarily going to stand up and give a presentation of biblical theology, you know, like Stephen. But they're everywhere they went. They're chatting the good news. They're witnesses, just individual people, witnesses to the good news, to Jesus's resurrection and all that he's done to the power of the spirit in them. They've been changed and they are personal witnesses to that fact. And so everywhere they go, it says they're proclaiming and telling. So that's how we see these ripples go out. That's how we see the church growing. People are scattered and everywhere they go, they're just chatting the good news. They're telling people what they know to be true. They're witnesses of the truth. And, uh, and we meet Philip here, and Philip, it, Luke has kind of put Philip alongside Stephen. They were both among the seven deacons appointed um, to deal with the widows, the dispute between the widows. And they're both men who have these incredibly powerful evangelistic ministries. They're preaching the good news. They're doing so with signs and wonders. And so we've, we've just seen Stephen, and now we come to Philip. Um, and he goes to Samaria. So one of the very places that Jesus has said is one of the steps, if you like, in this program of gospel um, proclamation. He's got as far as Samaria. Um, and there's all sorts of, it's quite a long chapter, chapter eight, and uh, go away and read it because it's quite fun. There's lots of things going on. There's, the, there's a contretemps in the middle with a magician, um, which is really um, in places um, amusing, but Simon is essentially doing exactly the same, uh, sorry, not Simon, he's the magician. Philip is doing exactly the same thing. He's gone to a place, he's preaching the gospel, he's performing signs and wonders, and, it, and it, unsurprisingly, just like in Jerusalem, with great success, and people are being drawn and listening to him. It's not without its um, problems or <laughs> issues, as you'll read if you read the, um, the interaction with Simon the magician. Um, but what we find then, in, in, as we come to sort of to the end of our little our part of Acts this morning, um, and that this promise of Jesus is this prophetic promise that the gospel is going to go out through these witnesses, through these people who witness to what they know, it's going to go out this far and this far and this far. And we come to the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, we're just going to quickly look at that little story in the next five minutes before we have a coffee break. So don't worry, it won't be long. So we start off from verse uh, 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert place. First thing to note about this uh, exchange I love is that, this, is that God speaks to Philip and just says, Can you, I want you to go to this road. Oh, by the way, it's in the desert. Um, we don't know what else he heard, but um, one thing we do know is he just got up and went. That's a huge challenge to me. It's like if, if I feel God, if I sense God speaking to me about something and say, I'd like you just to call this person or, or why don't you just do this or go here? I'd be, I, I have questions. I have many questions. 
for God at those at those points. Okay, Lord, why? What is it you want me to do? Why would I go there? You know, it seems that Philip hears God and he just goes and he goes just to a road. It's not a town. It's just a desert road. But but he goes and as he goes, he, of course, he meets or he, or he sees this Ethiopian eunuch, this um, fairly important person in the court of um, the Queen of Ethiopia. <clears throat> and he's in his chariot. So he, again, um, the spirit speaks, Philip hears, and he goes up to Earwig. He's kind of uh, listening in, and the eunuch is reading the prophet Isaiah. And um, so Philip is able to say, do you understand what you're reading about? And he says, I don't, unless someone explains it to me. Um, I wish this happened to me. I wish I heard someone reading Isaiah on the tube and could say, do you understand this? And they say, no, please explain it. And I could explain it. And they would say, I repent and <clears throat> surrender to Christ. What must, why can't I just get baptized? Because that's exactly what happens in this story is that Philip, through, through discerning the voice of God by his spirit, goes to a place, sees a person, goes up, listens to what they're doing, interacts with him, explains the gospel, starting with Isaiah the prophet and coming through to the current time. Uh, and, uh, and this man, rather than saying, oh, baptism is a big step, isn't it? Do I have to do that? Is that something, do you think that's essential to, to my Christian faith? Rather than saying that, which is sometimes the way I, we experience approaching baptism, he says, why shouldn't I just get baptized here and now? Why shouldn't I just display uh, my new faith in Christ um, right here and right now philip has the joy i'm sure of baptizing this man before he sends him off to the ends of the earth he sends him off back to ethiopia and the court of ethiopia which um to in one very real to very real extent for philip and um, for the early church is in fact the ends of the earth um we start to see that bigger ripple uh, go out to the ends of the earth um I make, I sort of sound a bit, I hope I don't sound flippant when I talk about things, um, you know, experiences of the spirit like that, but, um, and I'm not uh, Philip or, or the Apostle Peter, and um, I'm quite glad about that, but I do want, and I do think when we read these stories, it, it makes me reflect on my own experience of God and the power of God, um, I think everything we read about the spirit of God in the in the Bible shows us, and we'll come on to this in a little while after our coffee break when we look at the Holy Spirit himself, leads us to expect to, you know, God to be interrupting and interacting in our lives in ways that we should expect to hear him speak to us. We should expect interruptions and interactions. We should expect him to use us. Um, we should expect him to intervene in our circumstances and the circumstances of those around us. Um, and how willing are we and how willing am I, you know, to, um, to get up and go down to the desert road equivalent when God speaks and to see what he's got for us and to be so, you know, so um, convinced and so dedicated as a witness to Jesus Christ uh, that that's what I'm here for. That that's what we're here for you know to to be witnesses to to tell people what we know to be true or what we found to be true about jesus christ that's the thing that reading acts does to me 
for some people, I have a friend here who's an evangelist at heart. He loves the Acts of the Apostles. I think if he could, he'd pre we'd just be preaching that all the time and we'd never preach anything else. It's so exciting. It's so inspiring and faith building about what God can do and what he and what he wants to do in establishing and growing his church. Uh, and so we have to understand it's a very specific moment in time in history, Pentecost, the, the first outpouring of the spirit on the church, and then this extraordinary um, rapid growth and, and um, expansion. And that's not the time we live in, but we do live uh, with the same God and the same God who, who has the, whose spirit is at work and who we, you know, I feel when I read this, I feel inspired, okay, God, I need to stop and ask you again, you know, what is it you're saying to me? Am I attentive enough to your voice? And am I expectant enough of your activity, interruptions and interactions in my life? And that's, that's really what I want to go away with from reading Acts 1 to 8 today. Uh, and I'm sure that when you come to the next portion of Acts and we meet, um, Saul and the conversion of Saul and then we start to see the unpacking of the mission to the Gentiles with chapter 10 and Cornelius and so on again it's another uh, huge step in this project if you like in this program of gospel advance so the ripples now if I had a powerpoint I didn't want to do a powerpoint because it's for you guys it's just not that interesting but it um the, the ripples, I, I have this picture, which I keep on my uh, screensaver sometimes of just this, this idea, you know, I put on a piece of paper, this the stone with the ripples, you know, and how, how from Pentecost onwards, we, we live on one of those ripples, you know, we live somewhere out uh, on the ripple of the effect of, of the church being born, of the, uh, the gospel witness to Jesus Christ being established in the church, you know, us, the now the place where God lives on earth and we're out there somewhere on a rim of a ripple and the ripples just keep going. And as we know, probably there are still people groups in the world that have not been reached with the gospel, but, but we're reading, as we read Acts, we're reading the story that we're very much a part of as well, aren't we? We're still part of that church that was born then, that church that is ever expanding with the gospel witness to Christ. <clears throat> 